Well, you're stuck with me for a little bit this morning to talk about second and third John, or what some people prefer, two and three John, which is also okay to use that, to say it that way. Uh, my name is David Capes. Capes is spelled like uh, Batman and Robin wear capes. So, uh, Kind of remember it that way. I am a, a, a the academic dean. I think that's up here. I'm the academic dean and professor of New Testament at Houston Graduate School of Theology. Before that, I spent 25 years at Houston Baptist University as a professor there, teaching New Testament uh, um, uh, and among other things, doing some academic roles like being the founding dean of the Honors College, that kind of thing. But it's great to be with you. I live in Richmond, Texas, and about uh, 11 days ago, our house was surrounded by two and a half feet of water, courtesy of the Brazos River. And uh, we live about a quarter of a mile from the Brazos River, and we watched, we were on vacation, watching very nervously as, as just, you know, the grass as the water was coming up. And I tell you, it wasn't very restful. Can you imagine? And we had a house sitter, we had a dog sitter, a former student of mine, and he, we kind of calculated right at the last minute when he was able to evacuate. Others of my neighbors weren't able to evacuate until the National Guard came in. But I'm grateful to all the good people there. Our house, fortunately, was about four inches above crest. So I'm grateful to God. I prayed fervently, but 25 of my neighbors were not so fortunate. And so they had water in their homes, water, some water in their pools, and it's really a big mess. So we've spent the last few days uh, working, trying to clean our place up. Even after the flood, a lot of kind of nasty things like water moccasins in your garage, Texas coral snakes on your back porch, uh, critters that are flying that you've never seen before that bite you and do all kinds of crazy things. But uh, we, we're, we're so fortunate compared to many people who have been flooded out recently, and I'm understanding a lot of flooding there in Conroe as well. We live in very interesting times, and one of the things that I learned as a professor at Houston Baptist University was that there's a lot of difference in what people say about Jesus. And I want to submit to you today as we begin that what we think about Jesus, what we say about Jesus, really does matter. I had a student a few years ago in one of my classes there. Her name was Shazia. Shazia was born in Pakistan. She was a Sunni Muslim. And uh, she came. She was in my New Testament class about two-thirds of the way through the class. Shazia came to my office and sat down at my desk and asked a very important question. She said, Dr. Caves, what do Christians think of the prophet Muhammad? Well, I responded, I said, well, Shazi, when it comes to Muhammad, she stopped me. She said, would you mind saying the prophet Muhammad? Now, I already knew the answer to the question. To say the prophet Muhammad and that God, there is one God, Allah, is at the heart of what it means to be Muslim. It's like their confession of faith. So I thought about it for a moment. I said, Shazi, I respect you. You're, you're doing well in my class. She was a pre-med student, so she was doing really, really well. And I said, Shazi, because I respect you, I respect your faith, I will say the prophet Muhammad. And I said, honestly, Shazi, when Christians get together, we don't really often think about the prophet Muhammad because our Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the final, full, definitive revelation of God. So there's no need for another prophet to come along 600 years later with a different message. We talked about that for a while. Later... In that same conversation, I asked her a very important question. I said, Shazia, what do Muslims think of the Lord Jesus? She said, well, when it comes to Jesus, I stopped her. I said, would you mind saying the Lord Jesus? 
I'm pretty invested in that. And at the very heart of this book, these books, 2nd and 3rd John, is a real question about who is Jesus. And what we think about Jesus, what we do with Jesus, matters, matters, matters a great deal. So let's see. I want to see if I've got a lot of fun technology here Mark gets to play with all the time. I don't ever get to play with an Elmo, so we're going to see if I can know what I'm doing with there. We're going to see how this goes. Now, does anybody here remember the uh, sword drill? Sword drills? All right. When I was a kid, and I don't know if your church still does that, but churches had things they call sword drills or Bible drills. And in sword drills, what they would do is they would take a Bible, and you would you would put it under your arm like that. You would sheathe your sword, right? And it was based upon this text, for the Word of God is active, living, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. So they would take out the Bible. Say They would say, draw your swords. So you draw your swords. And then somebody, the leader, would call out a, a Bible verse. Let's say Psalm 118.22. Now, all the kids were lined up there together. It was a kind of a healthy competition. The goal was to try to teach people where things were in the Bible. And so when they said, charge, then everybody just opened their Bible and started looking, looking, looking. And the first person to it would stand forward with their Bibles open and read. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. And they would get a point or something. I don't really remember that. One of the things, the reason that I thought of that this week is because I have to be honest with you, and all the Bible I ever memorized at Valleybrook Baptist Church and all the sword drills I was ever in, nobody ever asked me to turn to Second John. Nobody ever asked me to turn to Third John. I dare say I have never heard a sermon on Second John, nor on Third John. Now, I've preached a sermon on Second John. I've preached a sermon on Third John, but I've never heard anybody else. It's one of those books, or two of the books, that are often neglected in the Bible. We might turn to John, we might turn to Matthew, we might turn to Romans and Ephesians and our favorite books, but there are great books in the Bible that you and I very seldom read, that have wonderful stories, wonderful lessons, that sometimes tell us something new, but also sometimes remind us of what is true that we find in other books. And the books of 2nd and 3rd John are sort of that way. I always liked it when somebody said, you know, turn to Zephaniah 3, 1. And people would look at each other, is that in the Bible? Somebody else would say, turn to Hezekiah. Of course, Hezekiah is not in the Bible, but it's a good find because you'd see everybody who's looking around kind of find. But anyway, it wasn't there. So anyway, the, uh, the reason that we're looking at these books today because they are in the Bible. They are Holy Scripture. They have wonderful messages, wonderful uh, truths for us if we will just spend a little bit of time looking through those. Now, let's begin. I want to go over to the Elmo now. This is going to be fun. I don't get to do this very often. All right, here, can we see that? Is that up there? All right, here, here's the beginning. Now, look, look, Second John is very short. It's a typical letter for, for its day. Books like Romans are hugely long. First Corinthians is hugely long. Most letters in the ancient world that were written were about the length of Second and Third John. And so notice at the very beginning, we have who the writer is. The elder writing to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Now, the author of this book, the, 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 when we look at the title of the book, it says Second John, right? It says Second John. But in fact, that's a tradition that's been added later. The letter itself, the original letter, said simply the elder to the elect lady. So the question is, who is the elder? Who are we referring to there? I've got several ancient texts I want to show you. 
The word elder here can refer to anybody of great age or anyone who is a leader. I was in a church one time and they had elders and they had a 28-year-old elder. I thought, that's kind of strange. You have the young elders here, right? Not too many churches have elders who are 28 years old, but some churches do. But but there was a great question that was, that was run among uh, the, the later rabbis in the Talmud. And so the question was this, do you honor... Anyone with what they called a hoary head, means gray hair, thinning hair, or do you just honor those who've achieved wisdom? Now, whoever the elder was, and I think it happened to be John the Apostle, but whoever the elder was, was a person who probably had achieved some age, great wisdom, and was respected and had the right to speak and to address the community. And so here we have John. Second and third John, writing John the Apostle, John the Presbyter, writing to in these two letters. Now let's take a look. Here's a couple of uh, statements here. Papias, early church historian, writing middle, maybe, uh, or the early part really of the second century. Papias wasn't so sure. One of the earliest traditions says this. And this is coming from Eusebius, writing a little bit later. Papias, of whom we are now speaking, confesses that he received the words of the apostles from those that followed them. In other words, Papias said, I didn't know any of the original apostles. Right? Instead, he learned from Aristion and the presbyter John. John's a very common name, Yohanan in Hebrew. It's a very common name in that day. And he mentions them, and according to Papias, the letter was not written by the Apostle John, but by another person, the Elder John. Now, a lot of church traditions, I, I often work with uh, in, with black churches and black church traditions. And in a number of traditions that I've been in, churches I've been sometimes they call their leaders the sage. So it's the word that they use. The one who is probably the oldest there, the one who has the most maturity, the one who has the most uh, had the most mentors over the year, They call him the sage, right? And so this becomes, I think the presbyter becomes, in a sense, the way of talking about and addressing those who are uh, in in charge at that particular point. Eusebius, however, believes, and writing a little bit later, aware of what Papias has said, says this, what should we say about the one who reclined on the breast of our Lord Jesus, John, who has left us a gospel, And he also wrote the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation that you've been studying with with Mark. And he was commanded to keep silence and not to write the words of the seven thunders. Now, I have no clue what that means, quite frankly. Because the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, there's seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, right? But no mention of seven thunders. Is there a revelation that that Eusebius was was about and knew? And it heard about that John was not permitted to write. I don't know. It's possible. He also left an epistle of a very few lines. That's First John. And perhaps also a second and a third. But not all people consider these letters genuine. So when the canon is being put together, the books of second and third John, some thought were, were, were not so sure that they belonged and had canonical status, canonical status. Not everybody was convinced. Some used it, some did not. So the books of 2nd and 3rd John were ignored in those days, much like they are today. No Bible drills featuring 2nd and 3rd John. Very short books, though. 
heresies against heresies by Irenaeus. He talks about this letter. He knows about it, writing in the year 180, citing it as scripture in the year 180. And this is the one I want to show you. Athanasius, uh, Bishop of Alexandria, writing in the year 367, his 39th Easter letter. And this is what he said. It is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. There are four gospels. Notice the same order we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's the Acts of the Apostles, same order that we have. But then there's a difference in the order because the Catholic epistles come next. Now, the Catholic epistles, that's not Catholic church. That's not the Roman Catholic. Catholic comes from a Greek word, katholike, meaning universal, belonging to everyone. Paul's letters are addressed to the Galatians, to the Romans, to the Corinthians. But the, the general letters, as they're often called, or the Catholic letters are addressed to churches in very, very many places. And so this particular one, notice he gives, he gives the names of them. There are seven of them. One of James, two of Peter, three of John, and then one of those of Jude. Now, he, he actually believes and counts the book of Hebrews among the letters of Paul. But not all scholars today think that Paul was involved in that as well. Well, the books of... Second and third John are classic ancient letters. I would make the argument, and I would have to spend a lot of time with you, that in fact the canonical order, first John, second John, third John, is not the chronological order. They are from longest to shortest. First John is longer than second John, second John is longer than third John. In fact, I think it is a good case to be made that the book of third John was written first. And if I had time, and if Mark invites me back, not sure that he will, but if he does invite me back, then I'll be glad to share with you why I think that that's probably the case. It doesn't really matter in terms of our reading of it today, but in terms of historical development, we think, I think, and a number of other scholars think that that's probably the case. When were they written? Probably sometime in the 90s. Although John A.T. Robinson, uh, a very, very great scholar who I met back in the 1980s, believed and wrote and defended the fact that he believed that they are written in the 70s, even earlier. Uh, not many scholars have followed him there, but I think it's safe to say that these letters were written not long after the gospel or perhaps right before the gospel. Late in the life of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, one of the inner circles of Jesus, who in his older days was called devotedly the sage or the elder of the church, the one who has the great wisdom of the church. Well, let's take a look, a couple of things here. The elder writing to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and we and will be with us forever. He's, he's writing this first letter, this second letter, what we call the first letter. What we call the second letter, I get that right. What we call the second letter, which may have been the second letter chronologically, he's writing it to this person called the elect lady, which I think we ought to take, we go back to the slides, we ought to take as kind of a metaphor and image. In the Hebrew Bible, Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem are personified as a woman. And I think that's exactly what we we have here. And she's described as the elect lady. 
Now, there's a reason for that. We'll come back to it in a moment because I think they're using Gnostic terminology in a sense to, to come in the back door because that's, the Gnostics often referred to themselves as the elect, the true, the chosen. And that word, elect, is found in the Hebrew Bible, Bahir, and it, it is the word used for the people of God, Israel, the chosen people, the select people, God's people. Well, why was it written? Well, to encourage a group of house churches with a true message. There are a lot of false gospels out there. There's a lot of false messages. Notice that for John, writing in this particular letter, false teaching is not in secular society. False teaching is in the church. And we must recognize it. We must avoid it. We must name it, and we must steer clear of it. It's not out there in secular society somehow invading in upon our turf. For John's perspective, he's looking at the church and saying there is some false teaching, bad ideas, bad practices in the church. We've got to name them. We've got to know them. We must do something about them. And I think that's exactly the sort of the purpose here of it. And this theme of truth is, is often through this. And we looked at it a moment ago. It says, the elder to the elect lady, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. There's that word, to know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And then he, he adds that typical sort of wonderful, gracious grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and in love. So that he thematizes the truth. Is that a word? I'm going to make that a word. He makes truth a theme of his letter. But for John, truth is not some abstract idea. It is found in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so the, you could, you could in fact, put the name Jesus or put the title the Lord in each of these places, whom I love in the Lord. All who know the Lord, the Lord who abides with us, walking in the Lord. He identifies Jesus with that truth and what Jesus stood for and who Jesus is truly is as the truth. Not some abstract concept. We can say all is relative. What's true for you is not true for me. What's true for this person is not for another. That's not his point. His point is that in the gospel, we see that the truth is Jesus himself. He embodies the truth. He is the truth himself. And so he begins describing now a bit about Jesus here in this letter. Now, I want to try to, to look at this particular passage. And I have it for you on the screen. And this is a key passage in, in 2 John. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, this tells us that there's probably a schism taking place with the church. The church is getting ready to split. This was before there were Baptist churches, by the way. Or there was the first, second, third. You know, there's a fourth Baptist church here. Anyway. Uh, those who do not confess Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ coming in the flesh. Now, those are described as the deceivers. Those are described as the Antichrist. Notice, many Antichrists are in the world who are at that time it's not some end-time eschatological figure who has a tail and a trident and ears, you know, big ears and horns. No, he's described here as people 
who have gone out in the world with a false gospel, misunderstanding Jesus, describing Jesus wrongly. And these are the Antichrist in his day. It's not to say that there will not be and there won't be a man of lawlessness to come in the end of days. It's simply to say that John was aware in his day of those anti-Christian forces that were at work, these anti-gospel forces that were at work in his time. Now, there's two ways of taking this particular phrase that we just read. And one is this. It, literally in the Greek, Jesus, the Messiah, coming in the flesh. One way is to take it that when Jesus, the Messiah, came the first time, he did not come with real flesh. It was phantom flesh. It seemed to be, but it was not true flesh. And the other way of understanding this is that when Jesus, the Messiah, comes the second time, he will not really come bodily. He will not come again in the flesh, in his resurrection flesh. In other words, it's going to be a spiritual coming. Some would even say it happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, the Spirit of Christ came. And so there are those who deny, in a sense, could be a denial of the second coming. Now, I happen to think, and I think many scholars are, would agree, that number one is probably the right choice there. That in the coming of Jesus the first time, he didn't truly come in the flesh in what theologians refer to as the incarnation. Now, there's a whole movement at this time that starts and flourishes in the second to the fourth centuries, which is before, well, these letters are before that, but there is what is called incipient or nascent Gnosticism beginning at this particular time. And Gnosticism was this philosophical movement. We see it affecting the church, particularly in the second to the fourth centuries. They had a particular way of looking at the world. Let me see if I can describe it for you. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's take the freshest, most beautiful apple and put it right here. Now, it, for you, it might be a jazz, uh, was it jazz apple? For some, it might be a gala apple. For some, it's a honey crisp apple. But it's a beautiful, fat, just wonderful apple, and we would set it there. Think about that. Can you, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that for a moment? Would you eat that apple? Of course. All right, what happens? There are apples sitting there. Two weeks later, go by. Three weeks go by. It begins to pucker and it begins to have a few bruises on it. And let's say six months goes by. Would you eat that apple? No, probably not. What has happened to that apple? It is rotted. It is decayed. The ancient word for that is corruption. Why does it happen? See, this, is, this was their science of the day. This is what they had observed. They noticed that things like apples rotted. Let's take something else. Let's take a piece of metal. Something made out of iron. Put it there. It's a beautiful piece of iron. Not a lick of rust. Not a lick of iron oxide on it. But what happens over time? What, a year. I've got some tools in my garage. I just bought them last year. I live in Richmond, Texas, next to the Bravis River. And I didn't oil them up properly. And guess what? They got rust all over them. I'll spend days getting that rust off. What happens after five years, ten years? So what has happened is it is corrupted. It is decayed. So what's happening in that material 
that causes it to degrade. Now, we could ask our scientists today, they would say, well, it's a, bio, it's, it's, it's a chemical reaction and it's between water and between carbon dioxide and oxygen and the, the, the elements in the iron and that's, that's what causes it. But ancient people didn't have that chemistry. And that apple, we know that that apple decays because of complex chemical and uh, biological processes that over time will just degrade it and, and cause it to just be mush. One more experiment, thought experiment. Take the most beautiful person that you've ever seen at the age of 25, right? At 25, you're as good looking as you're ever going to be, right? It's downhill from 25, I'm telling you. Most beautiful person, 25 years old. My, 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 my niece, Jen, just turned 40, and she said, you know, the difference between 40 and 30 I said, no. I said, at 40, you can hurt yourself doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> and that's true. Yeah, it's true. So, so, so take this person who's 25 years old and let 10 years go by. Let 20 years go by. Let 30, 40 years go by. What happens to them? And why? Why do we age? What happens when we age? Well, see, they were just noticing. They were good scientists in, of their own day. Noticing that everything in the material world degraded over time. What kind of God would make stuff like that? I mean, would a really good God make stuff that would degrade over time? Food, people, metal, There was something wrong in the material world, something corrupt about the material world that they noticed year after year. And and, and they said that that corruption was just an endemic part, an innate part of what material world was all about. And so at the heart of Gnosticism is just a recognition that this material world that we see and touch and we handle is in fact degrading. They would look at the mountains and the mountains seemed to be eternal. And they would look at mountains and rock as if it was something special and different because they couldn't see the the withering processes of erosion taking place with their own eyes, as you can see with an apple or a piece of metal or another person. And so they determined that there was really something wrong with this material world, something corrupt. So Gnosticism was not this single movement of its day. There were different forms of it, different kinds of it, different manifestations of it, based usually upon certain philosophical, complex philosophical ideas. And at the heart of it was this, that there was a true God who was above everything and utterly spiritual. And this true God was unknowable and unattainable. And yet this High God had generated all of these emanations, aeons. All of these emanations. And finally, when we come down to the very bottom of the list, there is a lower God, there is an inferior God, and that God is the God of the Bible. And that God is a God because this God can't make anything that lasts. This God can't make anything that's eternal. If this God is eternal, why does he make stuff that doesn't last? And so they they develop this complex notions about God and this pleroma and these 
series of gods that were up in the heavens and spiritual beings at various and sundry levels. They developed all of this as a way of trying to say this is what reality is. Reality, the material world, degrades. And so the question is, how could the one true God, if there is a true God, the high God, inhabit this material world that degrades all the time, is totally degrading? And so the problem for Gnostics was not that we are sinners, we violated God, and that we such... The problem for Gnosticism was that we have knowledge, we have a lack of knowledge. Either we have forgotten who we are, or we've never known. And so the true Savior comes from the Pleroma, comes through the the, the regions of the aeons, comes into our world, but doesn't truly inhabit a real body with real flesh. He inhabits a phantom body that seems real enough. But as Mark talked about the other day, we'll talk about First John. He walked on the beach and never left footprints, right? This is the kind of phantom image that they, that they have. Now, salvation consists, for the Gnostics, of awakening people from the slumber that they're in, the slumber of ignorance, the slumber of unenlightenment, waking them up with the true knowledge. And that's what the word Gnosticism means. It's the knowers, those who know, those who are in the know. And this is the sort of the plague, as it were, upon the Orthodox Church for many years. Since matter is evil, since matter is corrupting, Gnostics said that Christ only appeared to have a body. Seemed to. Didn't really. And so there's the degradation, the limiting of the body. This body is not good. This body is evil. So what you do in the body doesn't really matter. Or what you do in the body, you've got to just sort of train the body in a different way. And at the heart of Gnosticism is this whole notion of, of what is a human being? Is a human being a spirit caught in a body? Or is there some connection between body-spirit that is indelible, cannot be de- described or divided? Well, this is at the heart of what this book is all about. So here's the question. Who is Jesus? Phantom spirit from the Pleroma or God made flesh? His answer. Jesus is God made flesh. Anyone who denies that is a Gnostic. Anyone who denies that does not have the full truth. The true body of Jesus was a real flesh body. A body that hurts. A body that bleeds. A body that aches. Teeth that ache. Things can happen to this body. Everything that's sort of about this, about Jesus had to experience that. I had a student not too long ago ask me, we were talking about the incarnation in class. Shows you how Gnosticism is still with us. She asked, if Jesus had cut himself, would he have bled? And I turned around and said, well, what do you think? And another student in the back said, only if he wanted to. Right? Only if he wanted to. What kind of flesh is that? Anybody here get cut and say, well, I don't want to bleed today. I think I will not do that. No, he had flesh like mine, flesh like yours, carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and calcium. When the body of Jesus was raised, think about this. 
My doctor father, Earl Ellis, used to say this. He said, when the body of Jesus is raised from that tomb, a piece of the earth, because we're made up of the earth, right? Adam means earth man, one made of the earth. Adamah is ground or earth. Adam is earth man. A piece of the earth is made eternal in this new body. This new creation. There's a new kind of flesh coming. There's a new kind of body coming. In the resurrection, I'll be six foot one. I'm confident of it. But it is a body. The end game is not, I'm going to die and go to heaven. That's an interim state. The true hope of the Christian is the resurrection of the dead and the new creation. And that we participate with God in Christ in that new creation. I'm not denying the fact that when a person passes away and they fall asleep, as Paul says, falls who fall asleep in Jesus, that are immediately present with Jesus. But that's just a waiting game. Waiting for the second coming, waiting for what God will do next. Well, we've got a little bit more to go. He says, if anybody comes to you, doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him. If they deny the incarnation, they try, deny the true fleshness of Jesus, don't receive them. Don't give them a greeting, because if you do, you're helping them on in their mission. You're furthering their cause. And he said, don't do that. Don't help those particular teachers, those false teachers who are in the church, who've identified, you've named them, you know who they are. Don't help them along the way. I'm so glad to see you commission some folks today to go to Utah. You know these people. You know they're not false teachers. You know that you're going to support them. You're going to provide for them. You're going to pray for them while they're gone. It's it's crucial. It's key. Because not all of us can go to Utah. Not all of us can go to South Africa. Not all of us can go to Bangladesh. But there are those who go and those who need our support. This book is all about supporting those who are willing and able to go. And avoiding those who have the wrong sort of message. Well... Third John, a little bit about Third John. We don't have much time. It's a personal letter to a fellow named Gaius. Gaius is uh, it's really a letter of recommendation, quite frankly, the way it's written. Turn over to Third John. We'll see it. That's Jude. We'll get away from Jude there. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. There's that truth again. Whom I love in the Lord, the truth that is in Jesus. He said, beloved. I pray that it may go well with you and that you may be in good health. This was common in ancient letters to have a health wish, to wish someone well physically and mentally and spiritually. He goes on to say, as it goes well with your soul, all is right with your soul. And I pray that all will be right in your body too. Because John would say that together we are a body soul. We're not a soul and a body. It's all together. What happens to the soul happens in the body. What happens in the body affects your soul. We're all this one thing that God has made. And so he says, I pray it will go well with you. And then he goes on in the letter. Get back to the screen here. Describing him as a loyal friend. Because he has rendered service to brothers, even the strangers. Those who have been traveling missionaries. Those who've come into his orbit, 
He's helped them. He supported them. He gave them a place in his own home. No holiday inns in those days. No places to stay. So they would bring them into their own home and support them and love them and feed them and, and take care of them in their own home. I have a feeling that we miss something when we invite somebody to come and they come and we say, oh, I'll get a place at the Holiday Inn for you or Marriott or what? choose wherever. Why don't we say, I've got a room in my house or I've got a bed in my house, my bed. You sleep in my bed, I'll sleep on the sofa. And provide for them in your own home. There's something precious and wonderful and beautiful about that. One of the things that I love about Mark and Becky and their family is how generous they are and how much hospitality just exudes from them. We have lost, I think, as Christians, because we have all of this infrastructure around us, we have lost that sense of hospitality where my table at my home is a place that I welcome even strangers. It's hard to think about. Strange to think about. We say, well, I'll meet you at the coffee shop. Well, I'll meet you at the restaurant. There's something different about coming to a person's home and being around their stuff and being with them, with their dogs and their kids and their whatever. You see something, you experience something that's beautiful and wonderful. It's important for us to welcome traveling missionaries, John says. It's important for us to welcome them into our homes, to take care of them. And notice, I love this translation because I did it, actually. Because um, I think a lot of translations miss it. For on behalf of the name, they have gone out. And they didn't receive anything from the Gentiles. They wouldn't take anything from the outsiders. They accepted only support from those inside the community. And so didn't appeal to the government. Say, government, would you write a grant for, for this? They said, no, I'm going to appeal only to those who are insiders, who believe in this, who trust in this, who will share in this with us. They've gone out for the name. But let me tell you, this is a secret. Maybe you don't know this. There's a scoundrel in the church. There are scoundrels in the church. The church is not always full of holy, righteous, self-giving people. There are some folks in the church who are scoundrels. And Diotrephes is being named here as a scoundrel in the church. Take a look at what, what John, John says. See if we can get it down. Here we go. I have written something to the church... But Diotrephes, he likes to put himself first. He likes to be up front. He likes all that. Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority. The one who is the sage, the one who is the presbyter, the one who I think walked with Jesus doesn't recognize that. So when I come, I'm going to bring it all up. I'm going to expose it. Talk, all this Wicked nonsense he's speaking. This is a great translation, by the way. This wicked nonsense that he's speaking against us. And he's not in content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers, the traveling missionaries. He refuses to welcome them into his home. And if anybody tries to help them, he puts them out of the church. He excommunicates them. So Geotrophes was 
was a person to be avoided. He was a person to be named. He was a person to be said, here's a problem. Now, here's our problem. False teaching in the church. For them, it was a matter of traveling missionaries. For us, it may be a matter of who's on the radio, who's on the Internet, who's on the TV. There's a lot of bad theology on the Internet. There's a lot of bad theology on the radio. There's a lot of bad and wicked teaching in various places that you and I must recognize, we must defend ourselves against, we must name it, we must avoid it. But you can't do that unless you know the truth and walk in the truth. So John over and over says to walk in the truth, to know the truth, and that truth is Jesus. And the truth about Jesus is that he was God-made flesh. Not phantom flesh. Real flesh. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, iron, calcium. Real flesh. That seems to degrade, and yet in the resurrection, a piece of the earth is made eternal. And you and I will share in that resurrection one day. This body will be changed. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this body will be changed into a new kind of body, a glorious body. When we die, we die in weakness. When we die, we die in dishonor. But what is raised is raised in glory. A glory that you and I cannot even begin at this moment to imagine. We said that's, that's, that's our future. Knowing that future becomes really important. I love how the book ends. And with this, we'll be done because I think we're about out of time. I love how the book ends. Um... I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. He has has a lot more to say to the church. He expects to come, apparently. And he said, I hope soon to see you, and we'll talk face to face. That's an interesting idiom, face to face. The Greek idiom is actually mouth to mouth. We would call that kissing or CPR, right? I I, want to see you mouth to mouth. I want to see your lips moving. I want to see the white of your teeth. That's how close I want us to be together. I have, frankly, as as an educator, I'm worried a little bit about what we're doing in education these days. That we think all education can be somehow relegated to the Internet or some kind of social online community. I think there's something about the incarnation that says we must be present with each other when we have classes, when we learn from each other when we do what we're doing today. It's not enough just to have a chat group. It's not enough just to have an online learning management system on the computer. There's something about being in the presence of people, hearing their voice, seeing the manner of their walk, listening and watching and beholding. We need that. He says, I'm going to come. It's not enough. Pen and ink's not enough. I want to see you face to face. And then he says, take a look. It's the very last. A wonderful blessing, simple blessing, peace be to you. I've tried to give you, pardon me, I've tried to give you a definition of that peace. Cornelius Plantinga. It's a lot of words I know, but I think it's worth hearing. Peace, according to the Bible, is something different than what you and I experience. He says it this way, the webbing together 
of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. Peace. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire among enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing. I flourish, you flourish, we're all flourishing. And your flourishing doesn't compete with mine. Wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creature in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom. Shalom to you. I love going to liturgy Because of what I do, I get invited to all kinds of churches, Baptist churches, Lutheran churches, Episcopal churches to speak. I get invited to mosques to speak. I get invited to various places to speak because of what I do. So I really enjoy that. Appreciate that. But I, I love going to liturgical churches where they will pause in the middle of their service and say intentionally, God's peace be with you. It's a prayer. It's a wish. It's a hope. It's an aspiration. And my hope today for you as we conclude this lesson today is that God's peace would really be with you. Not just a little little peace, but God's whole peace. That you will experience life in this universal flourishing, in this wholeness, in this shalom, in its delights, in its beauty, in its glories. Experience life that way. And so as we go today, I hope that on the way out, you will shake a holy hand and hug a holy neck. No, 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 need, no mouth-to-mouth needed yet, I don't think. Uh, but, but shake a holy hand, hug a holy neck, and say to at least three people on the way out, may God's peace be with you. And mean it. Make it a prayer, as John made it a prayer in writing to Gaius and to the church that he knew there. May God's peace be with you. Very quickly, some points from home. This is what Mark does. Good things come in small packages. There are a lot of books of the Bible we know little to nothing about. It's great stuff there. Get in there. Work it out. Read Zephaniah. Read 2 John. Read 3 John. Good things. Read all those books. Don't just stay in the books that you know. Second, truth. However we understand truth. It's not, it's not a what. It's not an abstract conception. It is a who. Truth is Jesus. Get to know Jesus. And you get to know the truth. And the truth about Jesus is that he was God made flesh. Let a look. We've got to take seriously the incarnation. Incarnation means that your body is a good thing. That the creation around us is a good thing. And that the, the, the world, God's acting to redeem all things. Tapanta. The Greeks would say everything is flowing. Everything is changing. But what Christianity says is God will recreate all things and make it eternal. Flesh and bone and apples and all of that stuff that God has made will be made eternal one day at the resurrection. So salvation is not just I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. I hope that's true. I believe that's true. 
But we need a bigger picture about what salvation is. Salvation means today that I experience God's shalom, wholeness, fullness, harmony. And that you experience that, that we experience that together. And when you experience it, it doesn't detract from me experiencing it. We're not in competition on this whole thing. We still wait expectantly, waiting for the full act of redemption that Mark will talk more about, I'm sure, next week in that. Finally, false teachers are out there. There are false teachers in the church. Now, I don't, I don't mean this particular church. I'm talking about in the church body. They're on the radio. They're on television. I'll tell you about an encounter I had with one one time. But anyway, uh, they're out there telling falsehoods about God, about the gospel, about humanity, about salvation. When you know the truth, you can spot it. Get to know the truth so you can spot the false teachers who are out there. And avoid them. Don't support them. Don't send them a dollar. Don't send them a dime. Don't do anything to help them on their mission. But find those who have the true gospel and support them. Invite them into your homes. Invite them into your churches. Support them. Provide for them. You may not be able to go to Bangladesh, but they can. You may not be able to go to Budapest, but they can. So figure out a way to welcome them, support them, and go with them spiritually. And as as John says, you You are fellow workers, soon ergoi. You are fellow workers in their deeds. Let me pray for us as we go. Thank you, by the way, for being such a great audience today and sharing with me. Love to hear any kind of feedback you might have. Um, Share your home, finally. Mark, we'll be back next week, right? He'll be back next week. We pray for him and his family, and they're over there. Last I heard from him, he was on... Uh, a train, I think, going, getting ready to go through the, the channel between the channels and going to London. So um, I hope all goes well with them. But let's pray together. And um, let me pray for you today. God, thank you for these good folks. Thank you for the truth that they are walking in today. Thank you for their lives, for their testimonies, for the peace that is in them that passes understanding. I pray that you will give them even greater peace. a flourishing, a harmony of life, sweet dreams in the night, a family that loves them, friends who support them. May they have your peace, not as the world gives, but a different kind of peace. And I pray that the lessons that we have taken, the lessons that we learned, the truth of the incarnation might be ours to take. And to know that these bodies that you have made are wonderful, good, marvelous creations that we should cherish, we should nurture, we should love, even as we wait for our future body that comes on the day of resurrection. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.